This is the first talk in a five-part series from our UniChurch conference, Glory and Shame of the Cross. We hope it's an encouragement to you. Now, I know it's your thinking as you're sitting down there looking at me. You're thinking, well, that bald guy up there looks pretty heroic. (laughs) And you'd be right. I actually am a hero and I have the certificate to prove it. I have a certificate at home that says, from the New South Wales Police Service, awarded to Gregory James Lee, in recognition of community-spirited actions on the 31st of October 1994, who, having observed two men acting suspiciously, pursued them with no thought for his personal safety. As a result of his actions, Mr Lee received a stab wound in his upper thigh, The courageous actions of Gregory Lee are sincerely appreciated by the New South Wales Police Service. You see, courageous actions. I am a hero. It all happened on the 31st of October. It was a Monday afternoon in 1994. I was walking back from New South Wales University when I heard a woman scream. Now, usually when you hear a scream, you can tell what kind of scream it is, can't you? You see, some screams, they're fun screams. They're, they're kind of roller coaster screams. And you can spot those screams straight away. Other screams aren't fun screams. They're scared screams. And this was one of those scared screams. And so I turned around and I saw a woman sitting in a car, pulled up at a set of traffic lights, and two young men were charging off down the road behind the car, maybe 50 metres or so, and one of them was carrying a bag. Now, here's the thing. I'd been in bed all weekend. I'd had the flu. I was feeling like absolute death. And so I just stood there and watched them run. And then the woman looked right into my eyes And she screamed again. And it was almost as if she was saying, look, are you a man or are you a mouse? And I'm going to be honest with you, technically I'm kind of a mouse, but I thought, well, you know, I'll I'll amber after him for a little bit. I'll pretend to pull a hammy and then I'll be able to pull out with some kind of dignity. And so I just sort of set off after after these guys down the road at a fairly sedate kind of pace. And it was like one of those scenes from a cop show. It was amazing. They ran off down the road and I was going after them in hot pursuit. They turned down one alley and then into the next. And all the while, I was just inching inexorably closer to them. They separated and I followed the one with the bag. And then finally, I caught up to him. And we were both just kind of standing there, sort of hands on our knees, huffing and puffing, because actually you get really knackered in these kinds of moments. We were both standing there and we were sizing each other up. And I tell you, I don't know. I don't know whether it was the adrenaline talking, but I thought, I reckon I can take him. I reckon I've got this guy. And so I started to move forward. I had my fists in the air and I was all ready to be kind of a hero. And then the odds shifted dramatically in his favour. Because a blue station wagon pulled up and another guy got out of the car. And I was like, fine, I'll take you both. Come on. At that moment, he pulled a knife. And I literally said, the bag's all yours. (laughs) I didn't know it was in the bag, but I wasn't going to get stabbed for some lady's makeup. And the thing is, he stabbed me anyway. So he just came running at me, yelling at the top of his voice with the knife up here. And he just hacked. Now, do you know the most amazing and extraordinary thing? I tripped over the gutter. As I was going backwards, I fell over my own feet and the knife went straight down in front of my face, straight down past my chest and went into my thigh, right up here near my groin. The knife went all the way in, hit the bone and snapped. 
and the handle came off in his hand and he ran off. They, they got into the car with the bag and the car sped away. And this was my kind of Terminator moment. I got up and chased the car. <laughs> I don't know what I thought I was going to do, but I got up and I didn't feel a thing. The adrenaline was just amazing. I got up and I chased the car long enough to get the number plate. And then I walked into a shop. There was this panel beater in the back streets. And I said, I think you'd better call an ambulance because I might be about to bleed out on your driveway. <laughs> Turned out there was $65,000 in that bag. It was all of the weekend takings for a local furniture store. And they were dumb enough to send the same person to the same bank in the same car every single day. And it was a pretty exciting moment. And it's actually, in the last 30 years, it's been a good sermon illustration. <laughs> but in all honesty, and, and don't tell the New South Wales Police Service this, I really wasn't very brave. In fact, what I have to tell you is, in that moment... I was frankly terrified. When that guy came at me with the knife raised, my heart absolutely froze. And I felt this horrible, sick weight in the pit of my stomach. And I was terrified to die. Faced with death, I was just absolutely terrified. I wasn't even remotely like Socrates. You've heard of Socrates, the ancient philosopher. He was condemned to death for subversion of the youth. And the way he was to die was by drinking the poison hemlock. And Phidon, who was one of Socrates' young students, actually wrote about Socrates last night. And the way he tells it, after chatting idly with his friends about the subject of death for an hour or so, Socrates decides the hour has come. And so he says, well, come along then. Someone bring the potion if it's been ground. And his friends say, no, 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 no. The sun hasn't set yet. You could have hours to live. And Socrates replies, yes, but I'll gain nothing by drinking later, except that I'd be a fool for clinging to life. And so Socrates takes this cup, literally without a tremble, without changing in colour, and he quite cheerfully just puts the cup to his lips, easy and contented, and he drinks. And at this point, Phidon, the young student, he can't help himself. And so he absolutely just bursts into tears along with one or two others, to which Socrates responds, what a scene. You amaze me. That's just why I sent the women away. This is before feminism, by the way. That's just why I sent the women away, to keep them from making a scene like this. I've heard that one should make an end in decent silence. Quiet yourselves and endure. And with that, he lay down on the bed. And just before he closed his eyes, he turned, his, he turned to his servant Crichton and he said, we owe a rooster to Asclepius. Make sure you pay it without fail. Then he closed his eyes and he died. In the face of death, Socrates was braver than I could ever be. He drank his cup with no hint of fear. In fact, to be honest, Socrates makes Jesus look like a complete coward before, because before Jesus' death he showed none of Socrates' nonchalance come with me to Mark chapter 14 Mark chapter 14 this is the night before Jesus dies and the scene is nothing like before Socrates' death so this is after the final supper. Jesus and his disciples are walking in this olive grove, this garden called Gethsemane and have a look from verse 32 onwards. 
Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So this is Jesus' last night on earth. He knows that he's going to die the next day. But this is nothing like the scene of Socrates' death, is it? There's no bravery here. There's no bravado. There's nothing light about this moment. It says Jesus is deeply distressed and troubled. He's overcome with horror by what's about to happen. Because those words deeply distressed, literally they're horror struck. They're terrorised. See, Jesus isn't even remotely glib about his death for him. This is a horrifying prospect. In fact, it's so horrifying, it fills him with this dread. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. His soul is swamped with sorrow. His fear and his misery is almost killing him. He's so weighed down that in verse 35, he actually falls to his knees in the garden. And Luke says at this point that his sweat was falling from him like drops of blood. Jesus at this moment is in this agony, this torment in the face of his death. And for the first time in all of his life, Jesus begs his father to change his mind. Here is the son who has been eternally with his father, eternally at one, in one mind, in one purpose, with his father, sinless, And completely obedient. And now he says to his father, I do not want to go through with this. Verse 35, he says, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Don't send me to my death. And at that point, you can almost imagine Jesus raising his head in some kind of lost, vain hope. Before it just slumps. And he says in resignation, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus and Socrates could not be more different as they faced their cups, could they? One is so blithe, so cool and calm. The other one is in agonized terror. Why is that? How can Socrates be so offhand, so casual, while Jesus was crippled in the face of death? Is Socrates just braver than Jesus? Or did their cups contain a different poison? Tonight we're going to look at what happened to Jesus on the cross. What did Jesus suffer on that God-forsaken cross? And just to give you a bit of warning, slightly longer than normal, not that much longer, but slightly longer, longer than a normal talk. Why don't we pray? Let's pray as we begin. Our great God, here we trespass onto sacred territory. We come to the mind of our Lord in the moments of his death. We thank you so much that we have your word that takes us into it. And we pray that 
at the end of tonight, we will understand better what Jesus did on that cross, what was done to him and what was done for us. And Father, we pray that knowing it better, we would love him more. We pray that by the end of tonight, Jesus will have won our hearts, our passion again and again, for he's so worthy. Amen. Most of the time, the Bible is actually pretty offhand when it describes Jesus' death. It says almost nothing about the physical pain that Jesus endured on the cross. Mark just says, and then they crucified him. There's no hint of what it was that so terrified Jesus that he was on his knees the night before. Why was he so overwhelmed with sorrow? The Bible doesn't really say. But what we're going to do tonight, we're going to approach Jesus' death from three particular angles. We're going to look at it from the human angle, through Judas and the disciples and so on. We're going to look briefly, very briefly, at the satanic angle, how Satan was involved in the cross. And then we're going to dwell on the angle of the Father to see what it was that Jesus suffered. And from the human angle, you'd say that Jesus was never actually entirely popular in his lifetime. So John sums up Jesus' life by saying, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. There it is. His own didn't receive him. I mean, sure, at times Jesus was hailed by the crowds. All four Gospels talk about Jesus' amazing triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the donkey and people are there before him. They're laying palm branches and they're laying their cloaks on the ground and they say, Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. This is the great high point of Jesus' popularity. But it was only temporary. Jesus' popularity was only ever temporary. And with some people, Jesus was never popular. The Jewish leaders, the, the whole leaders of society, despised Jesus from the moment they laid eyes on him. There were four main leadership groups in the first century Israel. There was the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees came from the upper classes. They were the wealthy ones. They controlled the temple and they controlled the priesthood. So the high priest was normally a Sadducee. They were the private school kids. And then there were the Pharisees, who were kind of more like Ben and I, the kind of part of the world that we came from. They were more working class, grassroots. And you wouldn't find them in the temple. You generally find them in the synagogue. And they emphasised obedience to the law. They emphasised the rabbis, the teachers. And you can, so you can imagine, they didn't get on with the Sadducees very well. And then there were the political leaders, the Romans and the Herods. Now, the Romans were the occupying force. They were the great empire. The Herods were the local kings. They were their puppet kings. And normally, these four groups were all plotting and intriguing against each other, these minor little squabbles. But during Jesus' life, they all conspired together. So there's the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12. There's the chief priests and the elders in Matthew 26. There's the Pharisees and the Herodians together in Mark chapter 3. There's Herod himself in Luke 13. In fact, the whole Sanhedrin in John 11. That is the entire leadership of Israel, usually engrossed in all of their little intrigues. They united together in a conspiracy against Jesus. When Jesus walked into Jerusalem, rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, he really was a sheep among wolves. And yet it was ultimately someone he loved that betrayed him. You know, people have been trying to figure out Judas 
and why he betrayed Jesus for 2,000 years. There's all sorts of weird and wacky theories. Was it the money that he got from the Sadducees? Was it about money? Was he a Roman spy? Some people think that. Was, was Judas a Jewish nationalist, someone who wanted Israel to rise again and he, he just got impatient with Jesus to lead the insurrection? Look, I think when you look at the Gospels, it was actually none of these. It was greed. And I think maybe personal bitterness as well. Come with me, just turn forward to Mark chapter 14, verse 1. So you're probably still in Mark 14. Have a look in verse 1. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man named Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages than the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have with you and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospels preach throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And they were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. And so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, isn't that just one of the most beautiful stories in all the Gospels? And also one of the ugliest. This woman who has been forgiven so much, she pours perfume onto Jesus' head. And it's an extravagant act, isn't it? You can see what she's doing. She's actually pouring out her love on Jesus. And Jesus calls it a beautiful thing. And to this day, we're still celebrating it. But some small-minded people nearby complained because the money could have actually been spent on the poor. And Jesus rebukes him. He says, look, you could, you could fix the problem of poverty anytime you want. They're always there. You can help them anytime you want. And then Jesus, Judas goes off in verse 10 and betrays Jesus. Now, why would he do that? How does Judas fit into this beautiful story about the woman? What's going on? Look how John tells the story. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and as keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put in it. See, there's the truth of it, isn't it? It was Judas who complained about the perfume and not because he cared at all for the poor. No, it was because it cost him the opportunity to steal. He lost money that day. And I kind of wonder if it was bitterness, a petty, small-hearted bitterness at Jesus' rebuke because Judas was shown for who he is. And so he goes and betrays his friend. And I say friend because even though Judas was a thief and a betrayer, 
The betrayal still hurt Jesus. Look how Jesus sees this betrayal. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. And while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. And they were saddened. And one by one, they said to him, surely not I. It's one of the 12, he said. One who dips bread into the bowl with me. You see, this is Jesus' last, his ultimate and most precious meal with his disciples. These are the friends who have been with him for three years. This is the absolute inner circle of trust. And Jesus has just washed all of their feet. And he tells them the terrible truth. It's not the Pharisees who will bring about my betrayal. It's one of you. Worse than that. It's one who sits here at the Passover meal. This most precious meal of the year. For them it was like Christmas dinner. One who dips bread into the bowl with me. Is breaking the affection and trust. And you can only guess at Jesus' pain there, can't you? Except, you know, I think Jesus is telling us his pain in the words that he chooses. Because he chooses words that echo Psalm 41 when David cries out over his own betrayal. When David says, my enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? Whenever one comes to see me, he speaks falsely while his heart gathers slander and then he goes out and spreads it abroad. All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me saying, a vile disease has beset him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who has shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. See, we often assume that Jesus mustn't have loved Judas because he knew what he was going to do. Jesus must have guarded his heart against Judas, but that's not our Lord. No, Judas was one of the 12. Judas lived with Jesus for three years. They spent hours walking along the road together. They ate meals together. They slept side by side together. Judas was Jesus' close friend. And so Jesus felt all of the betrayal that anyone would feel, at the, all of the pain that anyone would feel at the betrayal of a close friend. Even my close friend whom I trusted has lifted up his heel against me. And yet Judas is just the very beginning. No, in the next few hours, Jesus is going to be abandoned by all of his friends. In verse 27 of Mark 14, Jesus says, you will all fall away. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. See, Jesus foretells how actually not just Judas, but all of his friends will abandon him. And Peter at this point, he's so full of bravado. He says, not me, Jesus. Even if I have to die, I'll never disown you. And Jesus says, oh, Peter, you will be the worst of all. You, my closest friend, will disown me three times. And you see it happen in Luke 22. Turn over to chapter, Luke chapter 22, verse 54. Luke 22, verse 54. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when he'd kindled a fire in the middle of the court, when they'd kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. And a servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. 
A little later, someone else saw him and said, you're also one of them. Man, I'm not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word of the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Peter, who was so full of bravado, even if I have to die, I'll stand with you. He's brought down by a serving girl. This is a little girl we're talking about is the word that's used there. Not a, not a Roman soldier, not a chief priest. He's not put on the rack. All it takes for Peter to denounce Jesus is the word of a helpless serving girl. And he denounces Jesus again and again And all the while in verse 61, Jesus hears his friend say it, I do not know him. The one I walked with for three years, the one who called me from the boat, the one who's called me friend, the one who has trusted, I do not know him. Judah, Judas, Peter, the disciples, one by one, they abandon him. And now in the dead of night, Jesus is completely alone and completely in the hands of his enemies. Enemies who have long been plotting his death and they've been waiting for this moment. Enemies who make Jesus last 18 hours as miserable as any human being could ever be. Matthew tells us Jesus was submitted to a sham trial. False witnesses come forward, but they're so ridiculous that they can't agree. They just keep contradicting each other and it's actually kind of pathetic. This is a moment in the Gospels where we're meant to laugh in derision because it actually shows us that if Jesus wanted to, he could have fought these charges. He could even have won. And so it's actually in the end Jesus himself who convicts himself. When Caiaphas, the high priest, demands to know if Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus answers, yes, it is as you say which is enough for them. At that point, the high priest tears his clothes and he cries out that Jesus has spoken blasphemy and the Sanhedrin declares that Jesus is worthy of death and they descend upon him. The aged, venerable leaders of Israel descend upon Jesus and Matthew tells us that they spit in his face and they strike him with their fists and they cry out to him, prophesy to us, Christ, Who hit you? And surely Jesus could have told them who struck every single blow for he created the very fists that are hitting him. And yet he says nothing. He does nothing. This is only the first beating Jesus will take that night. Next, Jesus is taken before Pilate. And the Jews hurl their charges at him. We've found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and he claims to be Christ, a king. But the thing is, Pilate, Pilate doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. He knows that Jesus is an innocent man. And so he, when he discovers that Jesus is actually from Galilee, he packs him off to Herod. And Herod is delighted to see Jesus. He's heard so much about Jesus. Herod's actually hoping that Jesus is going to perform some kind of miracle. The creator of the universe has been reduced to being a performing pet. 
But again, Jesus will say nothing. He won't do anything. And even though the chief priests are still hurling insults and accusations, and so Herod and his soldiers dress Jesus in a royal robe. And they begin to mock him and they bow down before him and they say, Hail to the King! Hail His Majesty! Hail to the Son of God! It's some kind of crude parody of what the crowds did only a few days before. And they don't even know how true their words are. But again, the true king says nothing. He does nothing. And so they pack him off back to Pilate. Now, by this time, Pilate's getting desperate. So he knows Jesus has done nothing wrong. And so he goes back to the crowd of the Jews, who by this time, they've gathered a great crowd of people in front of the palace And he says to them, look, you brought me this man for inciting the people to rebellion and I've examined him in your presence and found no basis for your charges. Neither is Herod because he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I'll punish him and release him. And they begin to cry out with one voice, away with this man. Release Barabbas, the murderer to us. One who takes life at this point has become more popular than the one who created life. But Pilate's so desperate to release Jesus, he appeals to them again and they begin to shout, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate tries one last time. He says, what crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. But they're relentless now. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And the crowd that so recently called out, Hosanna, save us now bays for his blood. And Jesus looks out over Jerusalem and this is the city that he wept over. This is the city that he longed to gather like a hen gathers its chicks. This is the multitude that he's had compassion on. These are the people that he's taught. More than that, these are the very children that he's created. And now he sees hatred in their eyes. And they bay for his blood. And so the governor's soldiers take Jesus back into the palace. And they strip him naked. And they flog him. And they put a scarlet robe on him, probably the same one Herod had used. And they twist a crown of thorns together, like some crude parody of a crown. And they force it onto his head. And they mock him with hail to the king of the Jews. And they spit on him. And they take the staff and they strike him with it again and again and again. And with just a word, he could destroy them all. With just a word, he could stand up and walk through the crowd and no one could touch him. But he does nothing. And so they take off his robes again and they put his own clothes on him and they, cru- they take him out to crucify him. And we're not told much about Jesus' walk through Jerusalem on the way to Golgotha. We can expect that crowds lined the way, jeering, they normally did. You could do anything to a condemned man. And when he reaches the crucifixion site, he finds that he's to be crucified next to two criminals. And Matthew and Mark tell us that both criminals then joined the insults. Even, even condemned men are insulting him. But one of them must repent because Luke tells us that he asked Jesus to remember him. 
And certainly the passerby, passersby, they ridicule Jesus. They shake their heads and they say, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. And the leaders and the teachers, they can't miss their last chance to ridicule him. They stand at the base of the cross and they say, he saved others, but he can't save himself. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he wants him. And the soldiers, they join in their laughter around the foot of the cross and they offer him up wine, vinegar. And they say, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Come on. And they play dice for his clothes. And God himself hangs above them on the cross, saying nothing, doing nothing. And look, we'd be tempted to think that all of this just bounced off Jesus, wouldn't we? I mean, he knew it was coming. Jesus knew how stupid and sinful people are. He knew what they were like. But how can this bounce off you? How can the cries of the crowd to crucify, crucify, just bounce off? They would prefer a murderer alive than you. How could the jeers of the crowd just bounce off Jesus? These are Jesus' children. He created them. They're his, they're his countrymen, he's the Jews. We know the words didn't bounce off Jesus because of the language he used. In John 19, 28, Jesus says from the cross, I'm thirsty. And they offer him up wine vinegar. And we'd be tempted to think that Jesus was just saying he was parched if it wasn't for Psalm 69. Where David says, save me, O my God. For the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I've come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I'm worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me. I'm forced to restore what I did not steal. Rescue me from the mire. Don't let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Don't let the floodwaters engulf me or the depths swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. Don't hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly for I am in trouble. Come near. And rescue me, redeem me because of my foes. You know how I'm scorned, disgraced and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. And this is Jesus on the cross. He looks for friends and there are none. He looks for comforters and there are none. And in verse 20, it breaks Jesus' heart. Judas has betrayed him. Peter and his friends have all abandoned him. The soldiers, the people, the leaders all taunt him in his thirst. They give him vinegar and Jesus dies completely alone and friendless on the cross. See, we don't often think of the pain that Jesus suffered from the human perspective. 
But Jesus died a battered, bruised, friendless, pathetic outcast. The last words he heard were hatred and scorn. And yet that's the very least of it. If Jesus' suffering had just been limited to what humans could dish out, it would have been worse than almost any of us can imagine, right? And yet, to be honest, nothing out of the ordinary. The Jews, the, the Romans crucified thousands of people in the first century. There are actually stories of Roman generals running out of trees to cut down because they crucified so many. Now, what makes Jesus' crucifixion so unique is actually the supernatural element. Jesus also suffered under Satan. All the way through Jesus' ministry, Satan was his greatest foe, wasn't he? So straight after Jesus' baptism, he's tempted by Satan in the desert. And during his ministry, Jesus is confronted with Satan's demons. Jesus calls the Jewish leaders the children of Satan because they're doing Satan's bidding. Satan has been Jesus' lifelong enemy, and yet Satan is also there on that fateful day. Come with me to Luke chapter 22, verse 1. Luke 22, verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. You see, Satan wasn't absent on the day Jesus died. He was there among the mockers, among the betrayers. In a sense, Jesus was dying at Satan's hand on the cross. In fact, in Luke 22, Jesus calls the hour of his death the hour when darkness reigns. We'll see tomorrow night and the night after, this is the darkest moment of all in human history. And yet ultimately it wasn't humans who were responsible for Jesus' death. It wasn't Satan who was responsible for Jesus' death. No, it was his father who led him to the cross. You see, ultimately the cross of Jesus was a matter between God the Father and God the Son. Between God the Father and God the Son who had become a human being. You see, on the cross, Jesus became sin laden as God laid upon Jesus the sin of all humanity you can see it in passages like 1 Peter chapter 2 he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree you see when Jesus died it wasn't just the hatred of humans he was wearing it was actually the sin of humanity that he was wearing as well or one of the greatest passages of the Bible, surely, Isaiah 53. The New Testament quotes Isaiah 53 or alludes to it 42 times. It's about this servant of God who suffers under God's wrathful hand. And he suffers because sin has actually been laid on him. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see what was happening to Jesus on the cross? God was laying upon Jesus the iniquity of the world. 
God was laying on Jesus the guilt for the iniquity and also the punishment for the iniquity. So Isaiah says in verse 12, he bore the sin of many. You see, when Jesus died on that cross, he died with sin upon his shoulders. It wasn't merely that he was dying under the Romans and under the Sadducees. Jesus' death was a death under the weight of sin. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says something so awful that it borders on blasphemy. Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, God made him who had no sin to be sin. Here is Jesus who was perfect. Here is Jesus who was God himself, whose eyes are too pure to look upon sin and he became sin. Jesus became the very epitome of sin. Sin was so draped over Jesus' shoulders that in a sense he was all you could see of him was sin. The very perfect Son of God was now sin itself. And so Jesus died under the wrath of God. As the perfect God who responds to sin with wrath poured out his wrath upon Jesus. Look at the sort of death Jesus the servant died in verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted and yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as the sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Do you see the sort of death that Jesus died on that cross? Jesus died in the torment and agony of the anger of the eternal God. In his death, Jesus was stricken by God and he was smitten by him and he was pierced and he was crushed and he was oppressed and afflicted all by God. The anger of the almighty God was poured out on Jesus' head. What else was it that he drank but the cup of God's wrath? Remember the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane? When Jesus on his knees says, Abba, Father, take this cup from me. What was the cup but the cup of God's wrath? The cup that in Ezekiel God says is large and deep. It'll bring scorn and derision for it holds so much. You'll be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of ruin and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You will drink it and drain it dry. You will dash it to pieces and tear your breasts. You see, God's cup is his anger. It's his hatred of sin, his derision at sin. And it's filled with drunkenness and shame and sorrow and it ruins and it desolates. And as Jesus lay on the ground before God in that garden, he knew the cup before him. And he was horror struck. And as Jesus hung on that cross, God poured it down his throat. Humans may have given Jesus vinegar to drink, but his father gave him a far worse cup. 
as Jesus hung there on the cross, the father who had always loved his son, the father who'd always glorified his son, adored his son, praised his son, now hated his son with a divine, pure hatred and now afflicted him with scorn and derision and Jesus drank his father's cup to its dregs. Why else did the son disappear? In Luke 23, 44, darkness comes over the land for three hours as Jesus hangs there on a cross dying. Why? Because this was the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord that is God's judgment day in the Old Testament when Isaiah said would be a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their sins. I'll put an end to the arrogance and the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. The cross was the cruel day when God the Father poured out his wrath and his fierce anger on his son. At the birth of the Son of God, there was brightness at midnight. At his death, there was darkness at midday. Some people have wondered if Jesus descended into hell itself. Some of the English translations of the Apostles' Creed. It's not strictly true. The Apostles' Creed says that Jesus descended to death, the, the, the dead, the place of the dead. But if hell is the facing of God's wrath, then yes, Jesus did. Not in the three days that he lay in the tomb, but in the three hours he hung on that cross, breathing his last Jesus was in the very pit of hell itself as God rained down hatred upon his child. And not just hatred, but also his curse. In Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. In Deuteronomy 21, anyone who is crucified or impaled or lynched, they're hung upon a tree. That person has died under God's curse. Their very death shows you that God hates this person. Their death is a sign that God is cursing this person. At his baptism, Jesus is blessed by God. He's approved by God. This is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. On the cross, God was saying to the universe, this one I curse, this one I hate, this one I condemn, this one I crucify. But the most heartbreaking image of all, has to be the image in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. Come with me to Matthew 27, verse 46. From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? 
of all of the things for Jesus to be on the cross, he was forsaken by his father. Now this is the son who'd been with his father from before the creation of the world. This is the son who had created the universe with his father, who was bound to his father with this divine love in the Holy Spirit. This is the son who had never known anything but the pleasure of his father, the delight of his father, the communion of his father. And now he was forsaken by his father, abandoned, discarded. Jesus died an orphan. And of course, he's quoting Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 plums the depths of Jesus' agony. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out day by day, but you don't answer by night and I'm not silent. You are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you, our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried out to you and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not disappointed. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my father's breath and my mother's breast. From your birth, from birth, I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from. For trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It's melted away within me. My strength's dried up like a pot shard and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Those aren't David's words in the end, are they? They're Jesus' words uttered a thousand years before his birth by his ancestor so that we can enter into Jesus' mind on that day, so that we can understand his anguish the anguish of an abandoned, forsaken son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out by day and you do not answer. God the Father on the cross turned away from Jesus. He disowned him. He rejected him. He discarded Jesus like so much junk. Worse than that, like a cursed filth. God is too pure to look on sin. He hates sin and he hates sinners. And Jesus has just been made sin itself. And now he is crushed, he is cursed, he is smitten, he is punished, he is abandoned and he is forsaken. Jesus in the moment of his death is more truly alone than any human being has ever been. He dies utterly, utterly abandoned. 
And the father who loved him hates him and turns his back on him. Imagine Jesus' torment. The cries of the crowds, the taunts of the people below, that's, that's nothing. That's the barking of dogs. It's the braying of donkeys. No, the real horror comes from above. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? After Judas, his friend, betrayed him. After the crowds who adored him turn on him. After the disciples one by one and even Peter abandoned him. The cruelest blow of all is that on the cross, the father turned his face from his son. Romans chapter 8 verse 32 even uses the word betrayed. The very thing that Judas did, the very thing that Israel did, God gave up his son. Some people have talked about the idea of maybe the Trinity itself was split on the cross. It's hard to think of whether it's the right word. I don't think it is. But what is true is that from the cross, the son called out to his father. And at that point, the father would not listen. I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer. Jesus' cross was awful. It was horrific. No human being has ever suffered as Jesus suffered on that God-forsaken cross. And yet, do you want to know the most amazing thing? He chose it. Jesus knew all of this. He knew what was coming. And he chose it. It wasn't just a human choice. It wasn't just the disciples. It wasn't just Judas. It wasn't just Pilate. It wasn't even just that the Father did this to Jesus. No, Jesus chose this for himself. In John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This is the command I received from my father. It's extraordinary, but in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, Paul uses the same betray word about Jesus. Jesus actually betrays himself to the cross, if that makes sense. He gives himself up to the cross. You see, the one thing that we must never believe is that Jesus, even though silent, we must, the one thing we must never believe is that he was a passive victim. Never believe that on the cross Jesus was a docile prey. Now, as we examine the cross, the last thing we, the last great truth we have to grapple with tonight is the triune cross. 
that on the cross, Jesus and his father together were architects of everything that happened. That is, the cross was not something God did to Jesus. It was something God and Jesus did together. Notice Jesus' language in John chapter 10. Jesus lays down his own life. No one takes it from him. But he also lays it down at the command of his father. See, the cross is the ultimate example of the triune God in action. So Jesus, the Father and the Holy Spirit, they're all one God. That means everything they do, they do together. When the world, when the universe was created, it was an action of Father, Son and Holy Spirit together. And in fact, everything that Jesus did in his life was done together with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So John weaves three great themes around Jesus as he comes into the world. Jesus was sent into the world by God. He came to do his Father's work And he came to do his father's will. And all three of those ideas, the scent, the work and the will, just get woven together. So John chapter 4, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and finish his work. Or John 6, for I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. Or John chapter 7, he who speaks on his own does so to gain glory for himself, but he who works for the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. Or John 8, the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Or John 9, as long as it's day, we must do the work of him who sent me. You see, Jesus and his father work together. The father sends Jesus into the world. He sends Jesus to do his work and Jesus obeys his father's will. And that is the great truth at the heart of the cross. Jesus and his father did this work together. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I've got the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up. And this is the command I receive from my father. You see, the father and the son were working together on that day. And the same is true of the Holy Spirit. Everything Jesus did all the way through his life was actually done in the power of the Holy Spirit, wasn't it? So Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was baptised by the Holy Spirit. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. He preached in the power of the Spirit. He had joy in the Spirit. Jesus' entire life was lived in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. And so was his death. You don't hear much about the Holy Spirit on the cross, do you? You struggle to think of even one verse about where was the Holy Spirit on the cross. But the author of Hebrews says, Jesus offered himself to God through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was there that day too. We're going to see in the coming nights, the Spirit was with Jesus, urging him and comforting him and strengthening him so that he could offer himself to God. You see, there was one God at work on the cross. The Father sending his Son, the Son doing his Father's will in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the triune cross. And friends, it's absolutely crucial that we get this. The cross was not something God did to Jesus. It was something they did together. It's crucial because we, that we realise this because some of the great controversies in Christianity at the moment actually revolve around the cross and what happened there. You see, you need to realise the cross is always going to be a battleground. The cross is always one of the things in Christianity that's under attack. And most of the time, Christians really struggle to believe this. We're like, how can people be arguing about the cross? It's at the very centre of Christianity. Surely we've got this thing bedded down by now. But no, no, most of the time. In fact, for all of the last 2,000 years, the cross has been under attack. There will always be 
for the rest of your life the next fashionable way to deny what Jesus did on the cross. And one of the ways that it's denied at the moment is to say that Jesus did not suffer his father's wrath. Jesus did not suffer his father's wrath because that would make the father unjust. That would mean that the father is a brute. In fact, that would make the cross a form of cosmic child abuse. So there are scholars saying things like, when the cross is understood in a punitive sense, Christ becomes the whipping boy who appeases the wrath of God. And another scholar says, how have we come to believe that the cross, that at the cross, the God of love suddenly decides to vent his anger and wrath on his own son? The fact is that the cross is not a form of cosmic child abuse, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offence he has not committed. The people who say that show that they haven't understood the Trinity. The fact is, the son did punish. The father did punish the son for an offence he hadn't committed. It's the very nature of the cross. But the cross was not a form of cosmic child abuse. No, the cross was the son's choice. No one took Jesus' life. He laid it down in obedience to his Father and in the power of the Holy Spirit, the cross was the great act of the triune God together. And as we gaze on it, as we look at what happened there, we love Jesus all the more. When I think of what Jesus went through on that cross, I adore him all the more. He captures my heart. I want to praise him and exalt him and enjoy him and fall in love with him all the more. Because I look upon that cross and I hear his words for you. It's for you. I'm suffering for you. I'm forsaken and obeyed and, and betrayed and sin laden and hated and accursed because I love you. And yet, over the next two nights, we're going to discover something extraordinary. And that is that on the cross, God loved Jesus and Jesus loved his father more than either of them love us. We're going to see that it's actually the cross for Christ's sake and for God's sake. But for now, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, the cross was truly awful. What happened to our Lord, our brother, our King was truly awful, unspeakable. And to think what it must have cost you, Father, to place your anger and wrath upon his shoulders. To think what it must have cost you to have the perfect son call out to you and to not answer to think what it cost the Son 
to hang upon the cross accursed. And yet this was your will and his will, your work and his work. And Father, as we move from this point, understanding so much better what happened there on the cross, we pray in the next few nights that you will show us how it's part of your enormous plan, a plan that is far bigger than us and even our salvation. And Father, as we love Jesus at this moment for his sacrifice, we pray that we'll love you and him even more in the nights to come because of your plan for glory. Amen.